Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week we'll be joined by guests from the financial services world to discuss the most pressing industry issues. I'm Amy Austin, reporter at FT Advisor, and joining me today is John Hill, a chartered financial planner at Saunderson House, and Stephen Cameron, pensions director at Aegon. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining us. Today, we will be discussing what the Conservative government has in store for pensions, especially as the budget is fast approaching on March 11th. In particular, we will look at how auto-enrolment may change over the next few years, what changes we can expect to see on tax relief, and whether 2020 will be the year for social care reforms. In their manifesto, the Tories pledged to find a social care solution, tackle pension tax issues and up their national insurance threshold to help lower earners but will they keep their promises? So let's start with the huge topic of tax relief and what reform, if any, we will see in the budget. In an ideal world, Stephen, what would you like to see happen to tax relief and what do you think the government actually has in store? Goodness, Amy, in an ideal world, where do I start? Um, I think one thing that I think we're all expecting in the budget is something which will help to resolve the issue that high-paid professionals in the NHS are facing. So we know that the government is looking at the tapered annual allowance and we expect changes there. There are lots of rumours as to whether that will be a change or whether it will be scrapped. To me, the big question is whether or not the government will stick with a solution just for the NHS doctors or whether they'll extend that. And I very much hope that they will extend it. I don't think it's right that we have different pension tax reliefs depending on your occupation. So that's a pretty much a given. I very much hope they'll also go further and to look at the issues of net pay for those who are not paying tax, income tax, but who are making pension contributions to make sure that they get the 20% tax relief that they're due. So I hope the Chancellor announces that he's instructed HMRC to make a change there. I think the big question is whether the Chancellor will go further and to create radical reforms of pensions tax relief. Now, I do favour considering moving to a flat rate of tax relief. What I don't want is for that to be rushed. And the reason for that is that when George Osborne looked at this back in 2015, we spent a lot of time as an industry analysing all of the issues around this. And there were many issues, some of which remain unresolved. So if he is looking at this, let's learn the lessons from the past and make sure that we've identified where the problem areas lie. For example, should flat rate relief apply solely to employee contributions or also to employer contributions? What do you do with salary sacrifice? One of the biggest difficulties is how to make this work for defined benefit schemes. And the other big question is at what, what level would you set the flat rate? Anything below 30% would begin to challenge whether it's right for higher rate taxpayers who expect to be paying higher rate tax relief in retirement it would challenge whether or not they're best advised to save within pensions. And what about you, John? Do you agree with Stephen? Is flat rate your dream? I wouldn't say it's my dream. I think the fundamental principle of pension tax relief is sound, that you're deferring tax that you pay until you retire, essentially. And there's, that there are incentives in place for people to, uh, to defer that 
pay essentially and take it later on. I think there are some challenges with flat rate tax relief that Stephen mentioned. For example, if you get a flat rate of say 25 or 30%, yes, that does encourage lower earners to contribute to a pension, uh, but it might put off higher earners and mean they become quite disillusioned with pensions, which is something that we're already seeing as a result of the tapered annual allowance. The other challenge is, well, if you're going to only get 25 or 30% tax relief, say, on a personal contribution to a pension, well, that does leave the big question there, what happens to employer contributions and salary sacrifice that Stephen touched upon? Because if I'm only going to get 25% if I put it in myself, but I can go to my employer and say, well, actually, why don't you pay me this amount into my pension instead? In effect, I will get the marginal rate of tax relief on that employer contribution via a salary sacrifice arrangement like that. I mean, if you look at tax relief as a whole and how much it supposedly costs the government, and I put that word cost in inverted commas, a lot of the cost relates to occupational schemes, so broadly defined benefit schemes, and a lot of it relates to employer contributions. So it's about 75% of the tax relief relates to occupational schemes, and about 75% also relates, if you cut the uh, cut the data a different way, about 75% relates to employer contributions. So the majority of the cost of tax relief as a result is the cost of employer contributions to defined benefit schemes. And so if unless you're addressing that, you're not really addressing the eye-watering cost that Philip Hammond referred to. So I think my dream for pension tax relief is we keep the system as it is at the moment, more or less. We get rid of some of the complexity to do with the tapered annual allowance. Perhaps we bring the annual allowance down a little bit or we uh, change the carry-forward rules to make them a little bit simpler. But I think the fundamentals of the system are sound. And when people say the cost of pension tax relief is because high-paid people are putting too much into their pensions, actually that's not really the case. It's the case that most of the cost is with defined benefit schemes and employees having to put in much more money into those because of low interest rates and those kind of things. There's been talk, and the Treasury have confirmed, that the taper review, the outcome, will be coming in the March budget. Now, will we see a scrapping of the taper, or is this just out of the question altogether? Stephen, what do you think? Well, we didn't used to have a taper, so it shouldn't be out of the question to scrap it and return us to where we were in the past. Uh, certainly the taper has made pensions much more complex than they were in the past. Another option would be to increase the level at which the taper kicks in. But to me, again, the big question is, will they do this just for certain occupations or will they make a change which applies across the whole country? And I'd much prefer that they did something that applied across the whole country. And what about you, John? I think it has to be on the table. I think it has to be something that they're seriously considering is scrapping it for everyone because it is an absolute nightmare. It's only good for pensions and pension people and pension advisors. It's not good for pensioners or pension members. Um, and it means that a lot of people, uh, particularly higher earners, are completely disengaged with pensions these days. Um, and they, they just don't see pensions as something for them. And if you've got a large portion of the population not seeing pensions as something for them, then I think that's a problem for pensions in general. So I think it's a bigger problem. And I think it's definitely something that they really need to tackle and for everyone as well, not just for clinicians and doctors. And what about auto-enrollment? Do you think we'll see changes to this in the coming year? You know, a boost to the contribution level or a lowering of the minimum age and current £10,000 earning threshold? The government uh, a couple of years ago carried out a review of auto-enrollment and they got independent experts to carry out that review. 
And they broadly accepted the conclusions that came out of that, which were that by, and, and what they said was around mid-2020s, they were planning to uh, do some of the things that you've just mentioned. So they were planning to base contributions on total earnings, not earnings above the, the 6136 as it is offset at the moment. They were also planning to reduce the minimum age and I think also remove the upper limit for auto-enrolment. Now, the government is now in place until uh, the end of 2024, if, if, if the five years rule, rule applies. So what I'm really keen to hear is, will they now commit to doing what they said they, they, they were going to do within this term of, of government um, so that we can begin to plan for that? Because if these changes do happen, uh, employers will need to prepare, employees will need to prepare. We all need to get behind this and, and make this work. I think the big question is, as well as that, might the government consider going further? So 8% of total earnings is what's currently planned. Will they go further? Some people have said it should be 10, it should be 12. And of course, for most people, 8% will not give them the retirement income that they aspire to. So most people will need to go further to meet that. Uh, my question is whether or not that should be compulsory or whether we should try to get people to do more on a voluntary basis. And in particular, there are some low earners who 12% on top of the state pension is probably a bit too much. And we don't want to encourage more opting out amongst that group now that auto enrolment has been so successful. So I'm really quite intrigued to look at where the government goes with auto enrolment in terms of compulsion and additional voluntary contributions. And on that, I think government and industry need to work together to try to engage people with their, their pensions. That's the big challenge now that we've got people saving something, get them saving enough. And, you know, we could debate pension dashboards uh, when they eventually go live. Will they make a huge difference? Will they really encourage uh, engagement? Uh, are there other things that we could be doing in the meantime, like simpler annual benefit statements? Uh, Egon's been doing video summaries to workplace pension scheme members. Uh, what can we do to engage people to think about what they actually need to contribute rather than have a blanket increase? So I think quite a lot to think about there. Sure. And John, what, what do you think? Um, so, yes, I, I agree with Stephen. They've promised uh, to look at that minimum age and they've promised to look at the... Uh, basically paying in from the first pound rather than that £6,136 uh, threshold at the moment. So it actually is 8% of what you earn rather than 8% of a band of qualifying earnings, which is just pensions jargon that doesn't really relate to the people uh, who actually use pensions. The other thing that I would say here is that I agree with Stephen that 8% is generally not going to be enough to provide a healthy retirement for people. Um, so I think the contribution rates certainly need to be looked at when they've increased the contribution rates over the last few years. Uh, we've actually seen not many people opting out as a result of that, much fewer than expected, and we're still below 10% opt-out rates uh, across the industry. So I think it's right that they look at increasing contribution rates, and it's probably right that they look at it at how much employers are contributing as part of that, because for a 3% employer contribution, especially if it's based on a band of qualified 
qualifying earnings is not necessarily very much. And if you compare that to what an employer would be putting into a defined benefit scheme or uh, some of the uh, occupation, other occupational schemes that exist, 3% is very low. And I think that's something that needs to be looked at in the longer term. The other big issue, and this is something that the Conservatives did say in their manifesto they would look at, is how do we go about broadening out auto-enrolment to maybe the self-employed. So only about 2% of pension tax relief goes to the self-employed at the moment, if you believe the latest government statistics, even though self-employed people make up about 15% of the working age population. So basically, self-employed people are not paying into pensions. And we do need to look at how we get self-employed people providing for their own retirement as well, using pensions and making the most of the tax advantages that are available to them there. One idea maybe is that self-assessment there could be some interaction there and when you're filling out your tax return there's an option for you to pay into a pension and you get tax relief as part of as part of doing that so I think that's something that needs to be done uh, and I think it's something that hopefully the Conservatives will do because they did promise to do it in their in their manifesto one final thing that I think it would be worth the government spending some time looking at is how the auto-enrollment interacts with enhanced protection and fixed protection because at the moment if you're auto-enrolled into a pension and you pay just one pound into that pension scheme you can lose a protection that's worth hundreds of thousands of pounds to you. We did have a case last year the Gary Hymanson case and as a result of that uh, he was able to get his fixed protection reinstated. It would be worth the government looking at a wider solution to these kind of things because it is something that does influence a lot of people and it might influence more people because we've got the review of IR35 this year. Companies will need to look at how they are classifying their staff and the consultants that they employ. It could be that more people are dragged into the auto-enrolment net and the kind of people who would have a problem uh, if if they were to be auto-enrolled in terms of losing those protections. So I think that's something that's also worth the government looking at. Let's move on to, you know, one of the controversies in politics at the moment and which may bring in voters. So the social care funding issue was dragged out over the course of last year uh, with the Green Paper, which was originally expected to be published in summer 2018, never actually coming to light. Instead, the government pledged to address the issue, but to close sparse details in its Queen's speech in October. Now, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has admitted that he does not currently have a workable plan to address the social care crisis and any reform could be five years away. Do we expect any social care in the near future or to, you know, rear its head in the budget or are we still a very long way from a solution? Stephen? Yeah, I was really disappointed uh, hearing Boris Johnson reveal that there aren't any plans about to be uh, shared with with the industry and, and more importantly with the public. And I think there will be tens of thousands of people who are anticipating going into care quite soon and their families who will equally be very disappointed that they're no clearer on what they'll be expected to pay towards their care and what the government will pay for them. To me, this is arguably the biggest societal issue that we face right now. We're living longer, more of us will need care. We need to be able to fund that. Uh, So, very disappointing. I expect in the budget we'll have a restatement of the monetary commitment, the short-term monetary commitment that the government will make to local councils to help uh, help with the crisis right now. Uh, That's great, but it's certainly not uh, all that we need. We need some kind of long-term solution. Uh, I do like the fact that the Conservatives were saying they would look for cross-party consensus because long-term care 
by its name, it's long term, it needs long term planning, and we can't afford for the rules to change every time a new party comes into power. So ideally, uh, what I'd like uh, Sajid Javid to say in the budget is that uh, uh, they are putting in place some kind of committee, a cross-party committee, to begin to take this forward. I would hope that they would set out some kind of timelines to allow for care professionals, financial services professionals, and the public to all have their say and to feed into that, that debate. In the meantime, one of the uh, questions I've got that I'd like clarified is, Boris Johnson does keep saying that no one should have to, to sell their home should they need to pay for care. And some people are interpreting that as meaning that your house and your, your, your housing wealth won't be taken into account when the government decides whether or not you should make a contribution to your care. I'm a bit puzzled and I'm not sure that's the right interpretation or certainly the only interpretation because what it would mean is you'd have some people who've got very, very large houses, very wealthy um, homeowners without much additional saving who might not need to pay for care and you might have some modest individuals with modest savings and little or no housing wealth who would have to pay for their care and I'm not sure that would be perceived as fair by the voting public. So I do wish that Boris would go a bit further and explain what he means. He might simply mean that if you go into care, you won't be forced to sell your house there and then. But if you do then have your care paid, you might have to pay it back on your death out of your estate once you actually do sell your property. So hopefully we can begin to see some more clarity, but disappointing to see that nothing concrete expected, certainly until later this year. And John, are advisors finding it hard to advise their clients in this area because they're still waiting for this reform to come and they don't want to start making plans if it's about to change? Uh, yeah, it's a challenging area in which to give advice at the moment, to be honest. It does depend on the client you're sitting in front of, obviously. Um, but a lot of people are worried about this issue, um, even people with quite high levels of wealth. And because there is that small risk of a catastrophic kind of care cost where you have to more or less deplete all of your wealth but it's actually not that many people that face those kind of costs the, the kind of, obviously it's uh, not very helpful necessarily to quote averages at people and um, these kind of things but you know most people who go into care don't stay in care for a particularly long period of time they're going into care because they they are in in poor health and uh, and you know towards the end of their their lives but it is it's, it's a classic case of where you need to pull the risk and so it's all very well to say to people you should prepare for this but it's a case of it's really something that's crying out for an insurance-based solution. Now, whether or not that is through people taking out insurance-based products themselves, that's one possibility. The other thing is, well, is it something that as a society we decide that just as we pull the risk of unemployment and we have job seekers allowance and those kind of benefits, we have similar benefits for people going into social care? Because it does seem quite inequitable that if you have a chronic heart condition, then that will be covered entirely on the NHS with nothing out of your pocket. But if you have dementia or other mental health illnesses, those kind of things, then that's something that you have to fund out of your own pocket. I think there are a lot of good ideas on the table. I echo what Stephen said in terms of uh, it being very disappointing 
the, the Conservatives haven't unveiled the plan that they promised that they had. Uh, there are some good ideas on the table. I think the, the Labour manifesto, if we're looking at a cross-party consensus, it is worth looking at what the other parties were saying as well. So Labour in their manifesto, they want free personal care for those over age 65. They also wanted a lifetime cap on costs. Uh, on any individual's contribution to costs of £100,000. And the Liberal Democrats, they said that a cap on costs would also be their starting point if they were uh, in, a, in a room sitting down and debating exactly what kind of a framework they want going forwards. So there is clearly an appetite to do something here, I think. I think if they're not going to do it now with a majority of 78, then when are they going to do it? And they haven't seen these kind of majorities for quite a long time. So they've got the political capital to do these kind of things now. And I agree that a cross-party approach would be sensible in terms of setting out a long-term framework that's stable and that people can plan for. But yeah, it's something where we do need to see action sooner rather than later because it is, as Stephen says, an increasing problem in our society and it's something we need to deal with one way or another. Well, we may have to come back to this at the end of 2020. John, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the FT Advisor podcast. Tune in next week for the next episode. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.